1: taking it to a do it yourself level. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero show, recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne, syndicated around Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast on the internet at bzd.org.au and 3cr.org.au and whichever podcasting app you choose to use. And don't forget you can also follow us on Twitter at bzdtechshow. G'day, my name is Anthony Daniel and today we're speaking to Associate Professor M Hank Hasler from the Australian School of Architecture and Design at UNSW, where he is the Pro- Program Director of Computational Design. Hello, Hank.
0: Hi, how are you doing, Anthony? Thanks for inviting me to the show.
1: It's our pleasure. We love getting so many different perspectives on on this problem and speaking to uh, academics is always a really fun part about understanding where things could go in the next few years. And you're in Sydney at the UNSW, but what what landed you there to begin with?
0: Uh, interesting thing, a Melbourne girl um, from a very, very early start. I've been Backpacking in 1996, the first time, and met a girl from Melbourne, Rosalinda McCurry. Hello, Rosalinda, if you might listen to the show. Hello from here. And um, we met in Bali, or in in Lombok to be precise, in the Gili Islands. And we became great friends. And she came with her friends to Germany, to Stuttgart, where I'm from. And then a year later, I went with friends to Melbourne. And then um, when I studied architecture in Stuttgart, we had to do an internship and then decided for the first time to move for a year to Melbourne, lived in Melbourne, loved Melbourne. I know it's hard to say that when you live in Sydney now. Um, I know the big divide between Sydney and Melbourne. Then later moved on, um, lived in, in Tokyo, in Chicago, in Delft, in Holland. And um, after my graduation as an architect, I had an offer or as, a, as a PhD student at RMIT at SIL, at the Spatial Information Architecture Laboratory with Mark Burry, one probably of the greatest computation design leaders in the field in Australia, and um, ended up in, in Melbourne a second time, did my PhD, and after my PhD, had a short visit back home to the fatherland, to Germany, and worked there for a while, and then had an offer as a postdoc fellow at UTS in Sydney here, been for three years at UTS as a postdoc fellow in the architecture school there, then had a lecturer position at UNSW, first in architecture, and then since 2015, I'm the Director of Computational Design, um, the world's first bachelor degree in that area. So right. long story short, yeah, um, been uh, for nearly 12, 13 years in Australia and loving it. Fantastic. Um, nice weather, nice people uh, who could not love
1: it. Well, of course. And the Australian uh, School of Architecture and Design, you mentioned it, it, it brings together a lot of disciplines in, in the architectural and planning and design and even construction. So what is the benefit of, of bringing all those disciplines together to come up with new solutions for the future?
0: Well, firstly, it's, just, it's reflected in our titles. We've been the faculty of built environment and quite often people get a little confused what the built environment is, but actually it's, it's everything when you look out of the window is the built environment. It's from urban planning to sustainability from industrial design to landscape architecture. So there's a lot of areas um, that deal with building and designing space. And cities are, are very complex, and, and buildings are very complex to, to develop and design. So I would argue as more stakeholders you have in the mix, as, as better it is to generate sustainable architecture, sustainable responsible architecture, resilient architecture. So being in the Austrian School of Architecture and Design at UNISW is a great mix um, of different people, of different characters, of different interests. And I think all of them bring very interesting aspects to the city onto the table. And I think that makes it a a great faculty and a great school to study and to research in.
1: What are some uh, interesting projects that are going on that are sort of combining a few of these things?
0: Well, we have from the university, grand challenges. So our new vice chancellor, Ian Jacob, who started two and a half years ago, said, well, there have been challenges we have to address as a university. And one of the grand challenges is um, climate change, obviously a topic very close to your heart as well. Um, So in climate change, we, we do a lot of projects and I maybe can outline them a little bit further. At a later point, on, on sustainability on sustainable planning, but there have been other projects as well that just brings together in, in climate change aspects you might not think about so at the moment we, we do a project with marine biologists where we take data from marine biology um, from oysters, barnacles, seaweed, kelp, um, and designing customized and, and very specific Seawalls for inner harbor areas. So, Sydney Inner Harbor, particular the, the White Bay um, Harbor area and Black Wattle Harbor, which is a new development area, an old industrial area, is highly polluted. And there's no mechanisms to clean the water because there's no rock shore anymore. So, it's just a seawall where normally oysters, barnacles who clean the water can't live anymore. So what we've done is with computational designers, material scientists, architects, marine biologists, um, computer science students, develop a script where based on information from the barnacles, oyster, seaweeds in, in how they want to live, we've been able to generate a form, a, a reef, so to speak, that is very, very customized for the location and that hopefully is able to attract and, and house, house more Um, micro-organism or or marine organism to clean the harbor again. So it's not really a very architectural design project but it just shows quite nicely what we do in our faculty that is without reaching or covers other aspects in in design than just the traditional we're going to build houses, we're going to build cities.
1: Absolutely. And, and yeah, it's, it's only about bringing those disciplines together that those interesting solutions start to emerge. So that's, that's really incredible. Yeah. So you did mention your, your discipline, uh, computational design. How do you define it within the school?
0: Computational design for us in the school is bridging architecture and design on the one hand with science and engineering on the other and all through computation and computing. So I see my graduates as players in a mix of city development, of industrial design development, of urban development, of landscape development, where quite naturally different stakeholders come together. So take a normal architecture project, you've got an architect, you got an engineer, you maybe got a, a sustainability engineer, a scientist, you've got design teams, interior design teams, and so on and so on. So all have to work together. So they normally work together and communicate design ideas through the computer. So you obviously need somebody in, in the mix who just sits in between and can talk to all disciplines and understands the, the capacity of the computer and the power of the computer to generate designs that otherwise might not have been possible. So I think our students are not only trained later to become a professionals in architecture firm, um, I quite clearly see them as, as 21st century or, or digital natives who all been born, by definition, or most of my students, um, after 1989. So they never really lived in a world without the Internet. They might remember a world without a smartphone. The iPhone is 10 years old, and a lot of my students are 17, 18. So it's really educating students for problems in the 21st century and, and giving them a handset or, or, or a tool set that enables them to solve 21st century problems with computer programming, with digital fabrication, with smart, responsible environments, with smart cities, ubiquitous cities, optimization, decision support, and so on. So, hopefully, students with the education are digital thinkers that are able to potentially work in areas that don't even exist yet. Like mm. when I've been at university and graduated, And I would have told my parents to become a software developer at Facebook or working for Facebook in general. Um, Facebook did not exist. Google hardly exists when I finished my school. Apple was in existence, but smartphones didn't exist. So I think one can really see that jobs quite quickly emerge in the last few years. And I would argue most of those jobs um, need a capacity to be um, digital literature, so you can design through digital technology, but you also can understand digital technology and you're also being able to understand the problems that arise from a context of the 21st century. So hopefully that's what we try to teach and try to achieve in computational design
1: fantastic yeah it's not just about surviving in the future but but thriving and creating that future which is incredible I, i'd like to maybe take a step back and talk about you know where it's all come from and you know when i th- think about this discipline as an outsider looking in i think about something like autocad which was i guess a pioneer in using computers to design buildings and but it would have started out as a way of maybe developing blueprints so perhaps after that point it, the, the whole design and construction process would have been looked very similar to how it was before. It was maybe just a, a tool to use at a particular point in the value chain. But can you, can you give us a bit of an insight into how technology is pervading the entire process now?
0: Uh, yeah, absolutely. The AutoCAD example is an interesting example because in principle, what AutoCAD or, or, or normal CAD software packages do at the moment is very similar to what you can do with a pencil and a piece of paper. You can draw a line that line is, is fixed, you may have been able to copy that line or rotate that line or paste the line or do certain kind of things with the line. But at the end, you draw a building that is fixed in its elements through the line drawings, so sort of the line weights. And it's quite difficult then to change later things. And, and obviously in architecture and design, things will change quite a lot in, in doing a, a design process, in a construction process. But then with a CAD drawing, you fix your design. So it's a fixed element through the way you draw. You draw a line by clicking on an interface in a CAD program and then you click on one point and you click on the other point and the line is fixed. So what we do in computational design is we use a lot of mathematical understanding and using algebra and and geometric understanding to program um, design. So what you can do instead of drawing a line, you can say a line is defined by two points each point is defined by three coordinates, x, y, and z. And if you then have a, a variable for those coordinates, x, y, and z, you would be able to change the x, y, and z value to any kind of number you want to have. So it could be zero, 0, 0 at one point, and it could be then 1, 2, 3, 4 at the other point. And that gives the, the design a, a huge potential. So in, in respect to sustainability, you would be able to say, still staying with that line, that that point and that line has to respond to the solar angle of the site um, and then should respond towards overshading, for example, a window in in summer and making sure that sun comes in in winter. So you could do, of course, that as well by just having the knowledge and drawing things, but if you 've been able to program that knowledge in and program other aspects in there, for example, like whatever cooling, heating um, overshading uh, cross ventilation, the computer would more or less design a building for you or you would you would design the computer program, and then the computer program based on your design will design your design option that is hopefully optimized for the location and and therefore by definition already. Provides a better sustainable design than if you do it by hand. That's so I think there is a lot of kind of advantage in there.
1: That's very interesting. It's all, it's almost like the, this innovation that you're talking about is is almost like what the spreadsheet did. You know, where you change a number in one cell and it and it propagates around. It's sort of bringing that sort of context to the design world, which is very interesting. Um,
0: mm, mm, absolutely, that's the idea. Too. So so really, you've got Grasshopper is the program we use quite a lot in Python scripting you've got the opportunity there to feed in a spreadsheet or use spreadsheet as a data source to generate design. And obviously, with digitalized information um, in spreadsheets, it's quite easy to use data, for example, on, on, on transport behavior for one thing, but also for, for planning of cities, for example, or, or ABS data or, or any data that is just digitalized can be used later as a design input, and that just opens up enormous possibilities.
1: Fantastic. We're on the Beyond Zero show and we're speaking to Hank Hausler from the University of New South Wales talking about computational design and there's plenty more we're going to get through and we go through very fast on this show. I did want to have, ask some questions on 3D printing and VR, but I, I want to maybe just smooth over that just because I think it's, it's something that uh, a lot of listeners would probably be aware of to some degree, and it is something that you're using, I guess, in quite a extensive way in your work. But I, I really wanted to get into some of the things that of how technology can be employed after construction. So you've talked about how you can use things to optimally design something that's still a bricks and mortar building at the end of the day. But there's probably a lot of technology, well, there's a lot of technology that you're working on that can make better use of a building once it's constructed. And I wanted to get a, a bit of a, a feel for you or what kind of technologies are being developed so that we can be a lot more flexible and and more sustainable in our building use after construction.
0: Well, um, before I started architecture, I'm, I'm a trained electrician, so I've worked as an electrician for three and a half years in in a factory in Germany. So obviously sensors, any sensing technology, will benefit enormously what a building can do or how a building can perform later. That that could only be whatever in in sense like that a sensor will enable monitoring of a sustainable aspect, but also a sensor more at present time is a smartphone. So a smartphone is a huge sensing pack where you can use a sensor or a smartphone to to capture information, how people navigate through the built environment. You could use a sensor and a smartphone to understand how people respond to certain things. So I think the the aspect of sensing in the built environment and having um, real-time information and responsive environments is hugely beneficial. We've done at the moment, or we finished last year, with honor students, uh, a research project where we track the movement patterns of uh, office workers in an architecture firm to understand better where people actually meet in an office. Even with social media and internet and, and phones, face to face interaction where two people would meet and talk is, is really, really relevant. So, for example, you interviewing me on the radio. So it's quite hard to actually read your emotions because I can't really see you. So I'm just keep talking, you keep talking. So face-to-face interaction is, is absolutely relevant. And what we have done in the project with Arab engineers and BVN architects is to develop a system based on a, on a sensor set and a Bluetooth beacon that enables us to understand where people are. And through the technology we've developed with the Bluetooth beacon, we can actually understand where people are looking to. So we can understand if people stop and talk for a while. Or if they're just going to pass by, or they're sitting back to back next to each other. So, with that, um, we've been now able to to optimize a floor plan, so make it more efficient as, as a floor plan to put more people in there, but also enable productivity. So making people working more productive together, because in a big building like a, a high rise building with several dozen people involved into it, you have to assure. That information is shared. That whatever ideas are shared. That the right people talk to each other. So, we hope that through that project we can lay the seeds of interface interaction, understanding how people actually use the office space.
1: It's very interesting. Yeah, yeah. but when a lot of people think about perhaps being more flexible with the space they've got, they, they would immediately think to moving physical components and you know maybe that the the only thing people can really think of is there's like you know concertina sort of doors to make a larger room or to open it to the outside but can uh, using computational design perhaps lead to some other interesting innovations in in movable components that can make a building fresh and 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 flexible in its use
0: yeah kinetic facades for example so facades that just can um, open and close up louvers responding to, again, sunlight or wind conditions. Again, it's a mixture of sensor and stepper motors or or pistons that enable to move parts of a building, so having whatever a blind open up and close, but not in a traditional way where a blind would go all the way down over the whole window, but only at a particular area. So at the moment I'm sitting at the, at the window facing west in the sun. It's getting warm here. So either would be the chance to put the blind down completely and block out all the light of the room, but in the end, effect I just only want to have no sun on my computer. So with the camera on the computer, the the, the, the hardware or the, the the technology of the the kinetic facade could understand and get an input that at the moment my computer screen gets um, too much light, um, and another kind of camera probably could identify or with Wi-Fi triangulation where exactly in the room I am. And then the kinetic façade could just close that particular aspect of the façade, a a small proportion of the window that is responsible for for putting sun on my screen. So instead of having the whole room dark, you just got that area dark that you actually need to have dark. And from a computational aspect to, to develop the technology and to design and program, it's not that difficult. I think students of mine would be at the end nearly capable of doing so. That's very
1: very interesting. I mean, I've got a few sort of examples that we could probably talk through. The one you just spoke about probably most resembles something like people wanting to use their homes to do a lot more telecommuting than they used to. So they may work from home more. And, something like a, a bedroom or a study are seen as being very different spaces where you know one requires a lot of light and comfort and one you'd want to reduce the light as much as mm-hmm. you could. To be able to manipulate the, the environments like that means you could probably get a, get a lot more use out of a building uh, and a, out of different rooms where you would consider them to be single purpose in the past.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's a huge chance in Australia to retrofit buildings the, the building stock in Australia has been all built at a time where, when sustainability did not really matter that much. So retrofitting buildings through kinetic facades or through other ways is probably a huge market to make buildings more sustainable and, and 21st century-proof.
1: I'm also interested in, in sports stadiums. I visit a few here and there, and it's almost like these... LCD technologies are, you know, maybe perhaps away from the sustainability aspect, yeah. but to be able to now almost thinking of buildings as just shells and the LCDs are almost becoming these, these wallpapers where you can completely transform the feeling that's associated with going into a building that, you know, is exactly the same as, we, as was, it was a week ago. I mean, that, that's an incredible innovation as well and could probably mean that we could use a lot of those kinds of facilities more efficiently as well.
0: Absolutely. So my my main research is on media architecture, media facades, so implementing big screens into buildings. I had a a bad rap for for a long time that it's ideas like Times Square came up in your mind, it's all commercial, it's just big advertising boards. But then, to be honest, if everybody put their hand on their heart and and think about how long they sit in front of a screen, a TV screen, a mobile phone screen, a computer screen, We've really been a, a screen-based society. So it's just, I think it's a national progression in a society that from your personal device, it just goes to a public device as well and becomes a screen. And quickly on the aspect of sustainability, uh, it appears that LED facades are very unsustainable, but they use LEDs. And if you would recommend somebody from your audience to use an energy-friendly light source, you would immediately say LEDs. So media facades in general are not as bad as they're often been perceived. But going back to your question with if, if the screens in stadiums, uh, I think it just opens a very, very interesting aspect of a new type of sports that we will see far more in the future than before, and that's esports. Um, esports is when professional computer gamers play computer games against each other, and you have an audience in a stadium or in a cinema that is looking and, and participating in that sport. So in the same kind of way, you would look at a soccer game or an AFL game and you see the players playing the the, the real game. You would see people playing a virtual game, a computer game, and, and you have crowds of fifty, 000, sixty thousand 60,000 people following the game um, at, at times in, in Asia at the moment. And it's a very, very growing market in Australia as well. So mm. I think in in Sports stadiums, I would argue, there, is, there will become very quickly a demand of retrofitting stadiums, so they've been capable as, as e-sports stadium as well, because of a young generation, uh, a very young Asian generation, who has interest in esports. That's and, very interesting. Um, there's yeah. probably an, an area there to look into as well, and, um, maybe they've changed the way how we see sports in, in 50 years or 20 years.
1: Oh, no doubt. I mean, it's funny, though, you, you talk about a lot of that, the, these LED screens and, and, and how they have almost become wallpaper in a lot of places because when you look at something like the smartphone, which is, is such a chameleon, you know, the design of the physical object itself begins to disappear. So is there any tension in the architectural community that the actual built structure will become less important and it's all about it just being a platform by which all of these screens are actually displaying the, the real experience the user gets from the built environment?
0: No, I don't, I don't think that architecture will disappear, therefore. I think there is, there's other things. When you compare a smartphone with a building, um, obviously the, the most obvious thing is the screen on the smartphone, but I think there's an, a, a far more other things in the, in the back of the, the smartphone that is, is interesting for building and for architecture sensors I've mentioned before, computing, communication between smartphone and smartphone. So, for example, I think our communication between building and building, which is a very interesting topic for me to think about. Um, what, What would a building talk to another building if they could talk or if they got a topic to talk? And that has led to a research project I completed with a colleague of mine from Sydney Uni, Martin Tomic, um, on responsive public transport systems, where we, we looked into how we can improve public transport through information technology, through, through smartphones, yes, but also through screens and sensors in, in stations. Because without doubt, with, with a growing population in Melbourne and Sydney and other Australian cities, the pressure on public transport is already quite high. More roads is definitely not the right way. So you have to build train stations. More bus routes, and all those things are quite difficult to do um, they 're cost intensive they take a lot of time, quite often they have been political difficult to achieve. So we advocated to to look into an info layer, um, an, an infrastructure where we use existing infrastructure, like an existing train station, and augment the existing train station 's hardware with information technology such as sensor smartphone technology, screens and so on. In order to to optimize and and, and as sweat what a train station could be. And and I think that's the the more the smartphone screen connection I can imagine than just having um, buildings disappear behind massive facades with, with LEDs. I think that's a bit Blade runner. Um, I'm not really sure if that really would happen. And I'm not really sure if you really want to have it happen all the time. I think there's a time and a place for that. And I think when you've been in Shanghai at the Bund and you look at the other side of the river with all the LED screens, that's lovely and it's interesting to have there and gives character. Um, for no reason, um, Times Square New York is the second most visited tourist site in the U.S. after Mount Rushmore, to my knowledge, because of the screens, because of the vibrancy those screens have. But without doubt, um, nobody wants to have a, a big media facades on their neighboring building. Um, it's sometimes hard enough to see that in Christmas um, when everybody decorates their, their buildings with, with flickering lights. So I think it's, it's more information technology and, and, and computation and computing between building that will matter in the future than the obvious screen in the front.
1: Great, great. Well, we're almost out of time on the Beyond Zero show, and I just wanted to end with a, yeah, perhaps widen the lens and talk about uh, urban urban planning a little more. And you you spoke about, yeah, asset sweating, make better use of uh, public transport infrastructure as it exists. So where does the design function come in there? I mean, could it start to resemble the online space where websites and apps are are almost in a constant state of flux, and, and they're testing new concepts in certain parts to see if they'll work somewhere else, or if they'd be more generally applicable across the user base? Could we see... You know, software being upgraded all the time to make better use of these spaces?
0: Yeah, there's, there's no doubt um, that software can be updated constantly. And the problem then becomes the hardware. I think the, the reason why an internet fridge will, has never really just thrived and probably will never thrive. Um, I bought my fridge probably eight years ago. And in the meantime, I probably have bought probably three or four smartphones. Right. Because the smartphone I bought at the time when I bought my fridge is not usable anymore. It's just the, the software is by far more advanced than actually hardware. So it, it's a bit kind of a challenge to couple hardware and software in a building sense a lot. Because you, if you're in a sustainable building, you will have it at least for several decades, not even hundreds of years, um, um, and, and use that building. So I can't really imagine that um, a building that is 100 years old will have... Uh, technology like sensor technology embedded into that in such a way that the software still would work so i, I think it will require a new form of architecture if you want to embed sensor technology into architecture probably more architecture that just is based for recycling that you can take parts of the building away so it's not glued and, and and screwed together but just with a few hinges you can take a part of the building out and that's the part of the, the technology in it and then you place on that part. Google has a, had a very interesting phone project called Project ARA from memory where the, the smartphone was made out of several different components. And if, for example, if you want to upgrade your camera, you're just going to take the camera out and replace it with a new camera. And I think that's a very, very interesting idea for, for architecture as well. Um, to wrap up on, on urban planning, I think urban planning will and needs to use more data and information that exists in urban planning and use those data for making evidence-based and data-driven design decisions. So I'm working um, as a last project to mention with computational design and the Urban Development Institute of Australia, UDIA and Cox Architects in Sydney on a project called Urban Pinboard, which is a data depository um, online where community, um, the public sector and the private sector has the possibility to access one and the same data, upload data information, ABS data, for example, or or land and property information and and see developments that will happen in the future in their community and and can comment on those developments. So instead of having the normal letter from council coming into your mailbox and saying there's a development, if you want to object go to the homepage Welcome to Town Hall, there's a homepage where you can just type in your address and you can see from your location what is happening. Does the the building affect my view? Um, Does the building overshade my backyard? And so on. So I think making better use of information and bringing information of the built environment more to the public and to the general community will be definitely one of my key interests in the next few years.
1: Okay, thank you very much, Hank. Thanks for joining us today.
0: Pleasure. Thank you for having me here. Have a good day.
1: You've been listening to the Beyond Zero show brought to you by the climate solutions think tank Beyond Zero Emissions. To listen to any of our other shows, visit us at bze.org.au. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.
0: It's not a product, it's a technology.
1: It's an education challenge.
0: A regenerative suspension.
1: There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. hydro. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than
0: that. You've got something that's transformational.
1: Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking
0: it to a do-it-yourself level.
1: You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.